0: Hello and welcome. We are Restoration Church in Prescott, Arizona. Thank you for joining us. If you are new, so glad you found us and were able to tune in. And uh, this week, Landon Myers continues the journey of Mark chapter 9. We are going to dive into Mark chapter 9. We will be in verses 14 through 29. And this will be our last uh, week in the book of Mark for a while, Because next week, though the practice doesn't start, we'll start the sermon series on hospitality. Mark chapter 9, if you have a Bible, verses 14 through 29. And like so many of uh, the, the scriptures and the, the stories that we read, the accounts that we read in the scriptures, uh, it starts with an account of real people. In Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29, it's the accounts of a father and a son And I imagine this account starting at the the nine-month mark when a man's wife is pregnant uh, and in full term at this point and ready to give birth and laboring. And they're so excited because this is their firstborn child. And unlike today, there's no hospital to go to. There's not doctors as we might think of them today. There certainly is no uh, ultrasound where they can find out the gender. And so they're waiting for this surprise, this couple, for the first time. Uh, the woman finally gives, gives birth to the child and is able to, to hold this baby in her arms for the first time, then to feed the child. And finally, it's the father's turn to hold their baby boy, their firstborn son, for the very first time, and he's overcome with joy because he's been waiting for this moment, and culturally, childbirth was even more important then than it even is now because their livelihood depended on their children, and this father holding his firstborn son for the very first time is pacing back and forth, just overwhelmed with joy at this, this life. Part he and part his wife that he's now holding, breathing after that first cry. And he starts to pray in thankfulness that God would provide such a moment, such a child to be their own. And he starts to pray about this little boy's future and to imagine it. This boy's going to grow up and they're going to play together. And one day, this little tiny baby is going to grow up to be a strong man. And he's going to take over the family business and, and meet a girl. And there's going to be a, another family. They're going to have their own children. And now this father will become a, a grandfather. And in this, this time of pacing back and forth and praying and giving thanks, the father has this vision of what the future holds. The father knows it's going to be challenging. There's a lot for this little boy to learn in time, but the father can't wait to go on that journey to teach and guide and support his son along the way. Nine years later, though, things have not gone according to the plan. In fact, none of those plans that this father has envisioned have come to pass So much so that it actually seems none of the plans that he envisioned for his son will ever come to pass. Because his little boy can't speak. He can't hear. He can't understand. He can't have conversation. All he does is mumble and spit and yell and scream at nine years old. And they've done everything that they can possibly do. They've spent a fortune going from doctor to doctor to person who uh, proclaims to maybe be able to help to the next. Another attempt Another failure, another attempt, another failure. And the father is beginning to wonder, God, why are you doing this? How are we so far from what was supposed to happen? He's, he's giving up hope. He's mentally and emotionally and relationally and physically exhausted at this point and doesn't know what to do. And then he hears about this guy, Jesus. Jesus that he, he teaches the, the scriptures with a different kind of authority that some are wondering if he might indeed be the Messiah, and that he can heal. And So when he hears about this, he thinks about his boy, and they decide that it'll be worth going on the journey to take his only son, his firstborn son, to Jesus to, seal, to see if he might be able to heal him. And so, since the boy can't communicate, he can't explain any of this to his son, he just grabs him gently, but firmly by the hand and starts to pull, just enough to indicate to his son that they're going to go on this journey. And at first, it goes well. For the first 15, 16 minutes, hand in hand, they walk towards the town they need to go to. But at some point, the boy determines that he doesn't want to go on this journey any longer. And so he starts to to wail and and flail his arms around and scream. Nothing, no tangible words, nothing that could be comprehended, but noise coming out. And so the father's just had it. He's angry. He has nothing left emotionally. And so he just yanks his son's arm and pulls so hard that the boy loses his footing. And the father just starts dragging him along the dust because he doesn't have anything left to do. He just wants to, to arrive there. The boy continues to cry, and to make these noises, and the father is just overcome with sorrow that he yanked so hard, and now he picks up his nine-year-old son and grasps him firmer and firmer, not out of anger, just out of love, just trying to get his boy to Jesus. Finally, they arrive at the town, and they they notice a few of the the villagers there, and they ask if if Jesus is there, and they say yes. They point the father to Jesus' disciples, and and the father's growing in anticipation. He gets to his disciples, and he explains the situation. He tells them about his son and what has happened, and and the disciples have this confident look on their face, and they look at the father and say, we can heal him. They've done it before. They have no doubts, and they try. They try. And they fail. They can't. And all this hope that was built up for this moment comes crashing down. And again, the, the father is left hopeless. And that's where we pick up, as I imagined, in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. If you were with us last week when Ron taught, uh, Jesus uh, was just a part of the transfiguration on this mountain. He and a few of his disciples. And now they're, wake- they're making their way back down. We read in verse 14, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. All of a sudden, when the whole crowd saw Jesus, they were amazed and ran to greet him. Then he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Out of the crowd, one man answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Wherever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. We hear a a story like this and maybe you've experienced some in some form or fashion, something similar and we go, why does God allow these things? And part of what we'll see this morning and what we see often in the scriptures is that oftentimes it's only in desperation that we're humble enough to let God love us. Often it's only in desperation that we're brought to a place of humility where we will allow God's love to penetrate our lives. We see this with the Father. It's worth considering who's all there in this moment, as there's this argument and these attempted healings going on. Obviously, you have Jesus and his disciples are there, this father and his son. There's a crowd. And then there's also this note in verses 14 through 18 that the scribes are there, and we've discussed them. Mark has discussed them throughout our time in the gospel of Mark. And the scribes are are different Then the Pharisees or Sadducees, who were also religious leaders at the time, the scribes held a special position because there was no printing press back then, and so the only way that the scriptures were recorded and given and handed down from generation to generation is that scribes would handwrite the scriptures and pass them down. They often had huge portions of the scriptures, books and books of the Bible, memorized, and so they had authority because they knew the Bible, God's word, the best. They had all the right information. What's really intriguing, though, is though they were the ones that knew the scriptures the best, though they had all the right information, though they were the ones that spent the most time in and with the Bible, they didn't even care, most likely, about this boy and his father. The reason that they came in this moment was actually just to argue with Jesus about the scriptures, which is interesting because many of us still gather to argue about the scriptures today the ones who should have understood most of all that this is a book about a perfectly loving God giving love, giving himself to the world and calling the world to love one another and God in return. They'd forgotten everything it was actually about, so much so they didn't even care, most likely, in this moment, let alone were they able to do anything to help the boy or his father. And that that brings us to our, our first point this morning, and it's this, knowledge about God, time spent in the scriptures, or knowledge about the scriptures does not guarantee a healthy relationship with God. I think that's a a common mistake that we make. Uh, Another way to think about it is this, when information about God or information about the scriptures is separated from the person the information is about, pride is always the result. And we see this so much in Christianity. People filled with pride about what they know about the Bible, yet they look nothing like the God that they're reading about. Information becomes king in Jesus' place. We have to be really cautious about this. They had authority, but they forgot the author of the scriptures that gave them authority. And many of us are prone to this as well, and then what ends up happening is blindness ensues, and they become blind guides, leading people to a misunderstanding of who God is. My wife has many, many, many reasons to be thankful for me <laughs> One of the reasons she 's most thankful is that i 'm a great steward of my brain and my mental space this is brought to her forefront every uh, fall when football season returns. And she is especially thankful for whoever the guy is that invented fantasy football however long ago, because I use a lot of space and time to remember a whole lot of ridiculous statistics. And on one of my many fantasy football teams, actually all of them this year, Kyler Murray, the quarterback for the Cardinals, was my quarterback. And so I know an absurd amount about Kyler Murray, especially during the season. Like I know who he's gonna play next week and the odds that he'll have two or three or four touchdowns, how many passes he's predicted to throw or yards he's predicted to run. I compare how many points he'll likely get compared to the other quarterbacks on my team or the team I'm playing. I spend a whole lot of really important time on this, and my wife is thankful for that. And I know a lot about Kyler Murray, but I do not know him at all. And we often make the mistake of thinking that knowing about somebody is the same as knowing somebody. For some reason, this is especially the case when we think about our God And so we can become obsessed with knowing all the information about our God, about Yahweh God, about Jesus, but we never actually know him. And that's what's happened with the scribes. That's something that we can be prone to. I think that's actually something that Satan wants. Uh, Another portion of the group that was there on this day was the disciples, and they confidently tried to heal this man's son. And they failed. And I think there's something to learn there as well, because they were banking on their confidence and the past experiences they have had with Jesus to come through in this moment. So much so, and we'll talk about this more throughout this passage, that they neglected relationship with Jesus himself and started to depend on their own abilities and past experiences rather than continual dependence on the Spirit. And it brings us to our next point Uh, which is this, just because you were close to Jesus before does not mean that you always will be. Now, here's a a caveat, and it's important. I'm not talking about salvation. This book, the scriptures are not first and foremost about salvation. They're first and foremost about relationship with a perfectly loving God who actually wants to be with us. This is why he left what we refer to sometimes as heaven, to take on the form of a man to be with us. That is his ultimate goal because that's how it started in the garden. He wants to be with us. But we can't rely on our past experiences to get us through the day. Again, I'm not talking about salvation, but it's an ongoing relationship. We could think of it like a couple that's dating, and at, fun, at first it's all fun, and they're getting to, to know each other and going on all sorts of dates, and it's wonderful, and then they decide oh, this is worth really pursuing, and so at some point on some day, the, the man gets on one knee and proposes, and she says yes, and they set a date, and there's going to be a great feast and celebration on the wedding day. And then nobody stops there, right? You don't say, okay, we're good now. We got married, relationship's set, and they stop working on it. Actually, that's not true. A lot of people do that, right? And and those relationships just die. That's just the reality of it. Any relationship where you stop working on it is going to crumble. And our relationship with God is that. It is a relationship. It's not something where you said a prayer one day and then we forget about it. Often what we're prone to do is that we care more about what we can get from Jesus or what our relationship with Jesus means about our future than actually being with Jesus. And that's an issue that that is brought to the, the forefront for us here. We continue reading in verses 19 through 20. Jesus replied to them. Listen to how harsh his words are here. This is going to be important later. You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to Jesus. When the spirit saw him, it immediately convulsed the boy. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Here's another maybe misconception that we oftentimes have. The presence of Jesus does not mean evil flees. does not mean that evil no longer exists, and it does not mean that evil won't inflict harm, pain, and confusion. In fact, oftentimes the opposite is true. In the presence of Jesus, evil gathers together for battle under the delusion that they can still win the war. Now that's a key here, that that is a delusion, but evil buys into it. And so we're going to be caught off guard. We're going to be harmed quite a bit if we think that just because we have been with Jesus or even are with Jesus or that Jesus is near or that we're with other people following Jesus, that evil will have no impact. The opposite is oftentimes going to be the case. The scriptures over and over again use military language about the defense that we need to take because Satan is out there to seek, kill, and destroy, to deceive, and he's really good at it. And so we need to expect that, not to fear it, because he overcomes it, but to have an awareness about it. Verses 21 through 27. How long has this been happening to him, Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said, and many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Then Jesus said to him, if you can... Everything is possible to the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly coming together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and convulsing him violently. The boy came like a corpse, so that many said he's dead. But Jesus taking him by the hand, raised him, and he stood up. Jesus makes miracles out of humility and honesty. Jesus makes miracles out of humility and honesty. Oftentimes, that's not what we think about, though. It's not the most knowledgeable, the most devout, the most disciplined It's not the the ones who have it together the most or, or sin the least. Jesus makes miracles, and we see this again and again and again out of humility and honesty because that's us getting out of the way and letting Jesus do his thing. I love how Tim Keller frames this in his book, Jesus the King. I've been quoting throughout this series. He says this, Jesus could have told the man, I am the glory of God in human form. Purify your heart confess all your sins, get rid of all your doubts and your double-mindedness. Once you have surrendered to me totally and can come before me with a pure heart, then you can ask for the healing you need. But Jesus doesn't say that, not at all. The boy's father says, I'm not faithful. I am riddled with doubts and I cannot muster the strength necessary to meet my moral and spiritual challenges, but help me. That is saving faith. Faith in Jesus instead of in oneself. If the voice in your head is telling you to do better, be better, know more, try harder, the voice is probably not coming from the Spirit of God. If the voice in your head is telling you to repent, to seek help, to be dependent and reliant on the Spirit, that's probably the Spirit. If you become the main character and the place, the point of change, it's probably not coming from God. But oftentimes I think that's what the voice and our head sounds like. The, the key verse there is verse 24. Immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. He spoke honestly, and then he also spoke humbly, help my unbelief. Jesus wasn't surprised by that. But when we're humble and honest, Jesus does spectacular things. When we try harder, we choke his presence out. Verse 26, I think, is important. It might be somewhat of a, a little bit of a side note, but maybe some of you are, are in this place. Jesus commands, come out of him and never enter him again. Verse 26, then it came out, shrieking and convulsing him violently. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, he's dead. Here's something else we, we see quite a bit, this pattern in the scriptures. Oftentimes, when Jesus gets involved, things don't get easier, they get harder. Things don't get cleaner, they get messier, and they seem as if they're a lot more broken when we're wanting things done in our time. I love looking at the, the punctuation, he's dead, period, end quote, Then there's the space between but Jesus. Maybe that's where you guys, some of you are at right now, in that space. That is the most important moment to press in and to trust him when it's gotten messier and it's gotten harder and he doesn't seem trustworthy. Can you imagine being the boy's father? Like, okay, well, Jesus did it. It's over now. Everyone thinks the boy's dead. there's There's this gap in time that probably felt like eternity. And oftentimes when we don't have a clue what God is doing, it feels like eternity. Eventually, though, Jesus steps in. Eventually, though, Jesus shows up on the scene and shows again and again, always, no matter the moment, he is trustworthy. Verses 28 and 29, after this, Jesus went into a house. His disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? They're probably embarrassed. They confidently said, yeah, we can do this, and they were unable to. They tried to heal this boy for the father, and they couldn't, and they asked, why couldn't we? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. What's so important about prayer and fasting? It's not some magical combination for a certain kind of spirit. It's not just the right thing that will please God enough so that then he'll hear us and do what we need or want or think we need or think we want. The common characteristic of prayer and fasting is that they force, they encourage, a posture of dependence. When we're fasting and when we're praying, we're recognizing that we're not enough. We're recognizing our own weakness, and it turns us to his strength. What had happened in this moment with the disciples who had prior healed people, had cast out demons, is that they were now relying independent on self. They were confident in their own strength and unaware of their own weakness. Oftentimes, our own strength and successes are gonna be our greatest enemies. So we feel as if we don't need Jesus. I love what Tim Keller says about this as well. He says, the disciples are trying to exercise a demon. And this, this stings, I think, in the best way because we can take it personally, we should. But they have been trying to exercise it without praying. How arrogant, how clueless they are, and oftentimes we are, about their inadequacy to deal with The evil and suffering of the world. The disciples tried prayerless exorcism for the same reason that they couldn't understand why Jesus had to die. They didn't see how weak and proud they were. They underestimated the power of evil in the world and in themselves. Jesus makes miracles with humility and honesty our egos that say we can, we will, they have this way of coming back and coming back and, and coming back again and again and again. My, my son is into all kinds of superhero movies right now. One of his favorites is Spider-Man, and this quote from Spider-Man has been uh, sticking out to me this week. He says uh, something along these lines. No matter how many hits I take, I always find a way to come back. No matter how many hits I take, I always find a way to come back. And I'm pretty sure that's a mantra for our egos. No matter how many times we try to put it away, it always finds a way to come back. Again and again. This is why establishing a posture of humility and honesty is never enough. We have to maintain a posture of humility and honesty. This is why fasting and prayer was so important to Jesus and why the disciples failed. Because that ego comes back and again, again and again and again, no matter how many hits it takes. And we need to be aware of this pattern. We can't let knowledge about God and past experiences that we've had with him Cause us to, to rely and depend on ourselves and to separate us from actually being with Jesus, from valuing presence and proximity to Him above all else. Again, Jesus makes miracles out of humility and honesty. And for this to happen, Paul says, we have to put to death the flesh and to invite the spirit. We have to put off the old clothes and put on the new. It's kind of harsh language, but it's true because that ego comes again and again and again. I'll uh, I'll close with verse 19, those words of Jesus that come across so harshly as many of his words do. Jesus replies to them in verse 19, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Jesus does not answer uh, this rhetorical question here, but the rest of his life is spent answering that question for us, and it's really good news because what we find, and the answer his life gives, is that Jesus is trustworthy because he never is going to stop showing up. He's on top of a mountain away from his disciples, and his disciples try to heal this boy for this caring, loving father who's brought his son to be healed, and the disciples can't do it. The scribes, who know all of the the right spiritual language and the scriptures better than anybody, they don't even care. And it's just in the nick of time that Jesus arrives. We can trust Jesus because he's never going to stop showing up. May we be a people that never stop relying and depending on him. Not that do better, try better, try harder, but that never stop depending and relying on him. And that's hard work. It's a simple solution, but it's hard work. That's why the church as a people who is so important. God said we're never meant to go this alone. Following Jesus is not an individual, personal thing. It's something we do together. That's always been his plan. We need each other to remind ourselves to depend on him ourselves. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that your love is so enormous and profound that it was not good enough in your mind to save us and to love us and to communicate with us from a distance. But that you, you came in the form of a man to be with us. You gave us your spirit to unite us to you fully. May that encourage us. That you protect us from ourselves and self-reliance and dependence. Cause us uh, not to just care about what we can get from you, but to just care about you, to delight in who you are. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Nate Huss, and I am one of the team members here at Restoration Church here in Prescott, Arizona. And if if this is your first time, welcome. We're so glad that you could tune in. Um, And if you'd like to learn more about restoration, please go to restorationaz.org. If you'd like to join us, we gather every Sunday at 8.45 and 10.45 a.m. And um, until next time, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.